Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. This is SportsCenter. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown. With Keith Olbermann. You are hearing right. We're starting in sports because of breaking news. Two extraordinary stories that happened overnight. Then we'll go to Trump and Tuesday's developments that mean if he was waiting for just the right time to flee the country, that moment is now. First, baseball free agent Carlos Correa, this time Tuesday on his way to a press conference to sign with the San Francisco Giants, has instead signed overnight with the New York Mets. The free agent and the Giants had agreed to a $350 million contract to run through the season of 2034. They scheduled a news conference for 11 a.m. Pacific yesterday. At 8.15 a.m. Pacific, the Giants postponed the news conference. Then they postponed Correa's scheduled appearance on the team's flagship radio station. It was widely reported something turned up in Correa's physical that caused the Giants to hesitate and over which they and Correa and his people disagreed and the Giants wanted a second opinion. New York and the baseball world awoke to news that Correa, too, had a second opinion. He wasn't waiting around. He signed with the Mets overnight for one year less and only about 650000 less a year, $315 million for 12 years instead of $350 million for 13 years, and he will switch from shortstop to third base in New York. It is stunning because... Yeah, teams back out of trades and contracts all the time. Just looking at the Mets, in 2021, they selected the pitcher Kumar Rocker out of Vanderbilt with the 10th pick of the amateur draft. Then they got a look at his physical, and they didn't sign him. Six years earlier, they had traded infielder Wilmer Flores to Milwaukee for outfielder Carlos Gomez. News of the trade leaked out during a game. Flores found out. He began to weep on the field during play. The fans rose in emotional standing ovations. Then Gomez failed his Mets physical. The deal was called off. The Mets instead traded for Ioannis Cespedes, and he and the untraded Flores led them to the World Series of 2015. But what's bizarre here is this got to within two hours and 45 minutes of Carlos Correa and the San Francisco Giants announcing their deal at a press conference. I was flashed back 
And my flashbacks are a theme for today's podcast to the story of Bob Donawald, an assistant basketball coach at Indiana University under Bobby Knight. Donawald accepted the job as the head coach of Brown University in 1978 and flew to Rhode Island. But on the way to the press conference at Brown at the end of March 1978, Donawald changed his mind. He got out of the car and he told Brown's athletic director he would just walk to the airport and go back to Indiana. He later coached for a couple of colleges in the Midwest. Carlos Correa is, of course, not officially a New York Met. The deal is pending a physical and obviously the completion of the press conference. There is another breaking sports story from overnight Tuesday, Wednesday, and it is nowhere near as happy. Football Hall of Famer Franco Harris of Penn State and the Pittsburgh Steelers has died at the age of 72. He was the most valuable player of Super Bowl IX. In all, he won four Super Bowls in Pittsburgh, but he will always be remembered for one play. And that's what makes this extraordinary. In the final 30 seconds of the 1972 AFC Divisional Playoff game against the Raiders, Terry Bradshaw passed to Steeler running back John Frenchie Fuqua. The ball bounced off defender Jack Tatum, or it bounced off Tatum and Fuqua and into Harris's hands, and he ran it in for the game-winning touchdown that kept the Steelers' playoff hopes alive. Or it bounced only off Fuqua, or it bounced off the turf. Both of those would have made it an incomplete pass and a dead ball and no touchdown. The officials during the game in real time seemed to disagree over the call, but ultimately Harris was granted the touchdown and the Steelers were granted the victory. There was no video replay in 1972, nor frankly is any of the video or film conclusive even today, even from people who've seen it thousands of times. Franco Harris's passing is obviously a tragedy to his family and his fans and his sport, but what elevates this story to almost unbelievable is this. That play occurred on December 23rd, 1972. The 50th anniversary of the so-called Immaculate Reception is this Friday. On Saturday, the Steelers were to celebrate that anniversary and retire Franco Harris's uniform number 32, only the third number retirement in their franchise history. That ceremony will go on as scheduled, but it will turn from celebration to memorial. Tens of millions of dollars in these returns that were claimed without adequate substantiation. What is in Trump's tax returns per Congressman Lloyd Doggett of Texas after the House Ways and Means Committee voted to release them last night? Next to no receipts for deductions, he says. No data, no evidence, in fact, that the IRS ever completed an audit of Trump while he was president, which would itself be a violation of its own policy because all presidents are required to be audited while in office. No evidence that it even began an audit until the committee asked for Trump's returns. And of course, the I can't release them, I'm being audited thing has been the fig leaf behind which Trump has hidden his taxes since at least 2015. When they are all out there, there will be six years of them, plus the returns of eight businesses affiliated with Trump. It is Al Capone time. It is evidence. My point here yesterday was that it was the evidence the January 6th committee had presented and not the criminal referrals that mattered. And now Punchbowl News is reporting that the committee is sending special counsel Jack Smith its evidence, all of its evidence, all of Mark Meadows's texts, transcripts of its interviews with many of its 1,000 different witnesses, especially the ones who testified about the John Eastman fake elector scheme. They started shipping last week, just in time for Christmas. Prior to Council Smith's letter to the House Committee Chairman Benny Thompson on December 5th, the committee had been hesitant to send its raw materials, but apparently that has changed and changed completely. The hope Hicks 
text, Smith. The I told Trump to tweet about not being violent Monday and Tuesday before the insurrection Wednesday, and he refused Monday and Tuesday text. Get that, Smith. Get it framed. I am still suffering from Mueller PTSD and am still not fully convinced that Jack Smith's appointment might not still be just another delay to run out the clock because too many in government from both parties still believe the purpose of their jobs is to protect anybody who will ever hold their jobs from accountability, let alone prosecution. But this is slightly encouraging. Meanwhile, the committee may have produced evidence of yet another crime. I also mentioned this yesterday. There is new evidence of another cover-up of obstruction of justice relative to the January 6th committee itself. The committee revealed yesterday that a witness revealed her attorney told her she could get away with not correcting her testimony, even though she thought it was incomplete, that she was told that saying she couldn't recall was fine, even if she could recall. Last night, CNN identified the witness and the attorney. It is none other than the former Trump Oval Office aide Cassidy Hutchinson and the lawyer, who we may soon be able to call the ex-lawyer, the one who told her that, per the CNN report, is named Stefan Passantino. And Stefan Passantino also worked in the Trump White House as, believe it or not, the presidential ethics attorney. Well, what he did might be illegal, but at least it was truthful. What else would you expect from the Trump ethics attorney? The Associated Press, meantime, hit another angle to the committee hearing. And today the committee is expected to release its full report. In short, the AP noting it's quiet, it's too quiet. For all the damning words about Trump on Monday, almost no Republicans said a thing in his defense. The AP reminds us that after the Mar-a-Lago document search, Mitch McConnell demanded, quote, an immediate and thorough explanation from the FBI. But about the January 6th committee's metaphorical impaling of Trump, McConnell said only the entire nation knows who is responsible for that day. Even Josh Hawley, running man, who demanded Merrick Garland resign after Mar-a-Lago, said nothing about the committee's criminal referrals on Trump. The news service could get only one prominent Republican to go on the record in defense of Trump on Monday, the hapless opportunist Elise Stefanik of New York. She called the committee unconstitutional and illegitimate, but even she said nothing to suggest Trump had been somehow maligned by it. Bigger picture. Last night, 21 Republican senators voted to proceed on the omnibus spending bill, even while the Republican House was railing against it. That preliminary vote passed 70 to 25, and the bill includes the bipartisan Electoral Count Reform and Presidential Transition Improvement Act, which would clean up the fuzziness of the original Electoral Count Act of 1887. Specifically, this one would specify that the vice president's role in counting electors is completely ceremonial. It would also override potential variants of the Eastman plan at the state level, requiring governors to certify only those electors who match up with the popular vote in their states. It would also smooth processes to challenge Eastman electoral slates in the courts. As the impeccable Greg Sargent of the Washington Post put it, the GOP is quietly Trump-proofing our system behind his back. Unfortunately, the omnibus bill does not include a measure proposed to neutralize Schedule F, the plan which would let Trump or any president fire all career bureaucrats, civil service staffers, and replace them with political flunkies. And if you haven't seen it, there was also a Washington Post column yesterday echoing what is now about a dozen similar suggestions that have floated out of the far right as the prospect rose. Again, something mentioned here yesterday of just what the trial of Donald Trump would look like. That looming reality has forced conservatives to find an emergency exit somewhere so that a Trump on trial would not take them down with him. Their proposal... The Agnew option. 
if you are not old enough to have lived through this, hi, how are you? Spiro Ted Agnew, Richard Nixon's first vice president, corrupted everything he touched except the Visiting Nurse Association. He reportedly took cash bribes as governor of Maryland and cash bribes in the White House as vice president. Rather than put him on trial, the Justice Department offered him and the Nixon administration a deal, a no-contest plea to one charge of violating federal tax laws, a $10,000 fine, his resignation as vice president, and his permanent retirement from public office. Not that Trump would do this, but it is clear conservatives are coalescing around the idea that if justice dropped everything that could actually put Trump in jail or required a trial and simply asked for something like a guilty plea on insurrection and an acknowledgement that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment would preclude Trump from seeking office again because he had pleaded guilty to insurrection, we would then be spared another long national nightmare. My first thought was... Sure, but couldn't Trump transfer his cult to his son or some other derelict human being? On the other hand, if he was convicted of everything from the taxes to trying to overthrow the government and he had to spend the rest of his life in a supermax prison somewhere, couldn't Trump transfer his cult to his son or some other derelict human being? Like, say... Congressman-elect George Santos of New York, the chairman of the Nassau County Republicans, has even said now that the fact that Santos apparently made up everything about his resume except his birth date is, quote, serious. And the Democrat he beat has called for Santos to resign. Of more relevance, silence from those whom Santos could take down with him, the Republicans who loudly endorsed him and now look complicit in the fraud. Among them, longtime moderate New York Republican Governor George Pataki, 2022 Republican candidate for Governor of New York Lee Zeldin, Congresswoman Stefanik, the Nassau County Police Benevolent Association, the New York Post newspaper, Congressman Ronnie Jackson of Texas, and best of all, of all those who endorse this idiot, the presumptive Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. And all day yesterday, I kept thinking of just one thing. They helped George Santos. George Santos. They helped him. George Santos helpers. Santos helpers. Santos helper. Santos L. Halper. Santos L. Halper. If you know, you know. So it's that time again for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze... The website Mediaite hired an idiot named Isaac Shore away from the conservative National Review. One of his first stories for Mediaite was about the Elon Musk Twitter suspensions. Shore wrote that one of the victims of Musk's rage was, quote, John Mastodon, the founder of a competing social media company named after himself. I'll just repeat that. John Mastodon, the founder of a competing social media company named after himself. Of course, what it said in the tweet was, join Mastodon. This kid, sure, like all standard conservatives, didn't understand something, and instead of asking a grown-up, he just made up whatever sounded good to him. John Mastodon. Uh, my family name is Mastodon. This over here, this is my cousin Stan Elephant. No, we're not related to the former head of the European Union, Donald Tusk. John Mastodon. <laughs> Our runner-up, speaking of Mastodons, James Dolan, the owner of Madison Square Garden, the New York Knicks, the New York Rangers. He has rivals to be the worst owner in sports and entertainment, but not when it comes to hands-on pettiness. A woman named Kelly Conlon says she took her daughter to Radio City in New York, which Dolan and Madison Square Garden also own. They were part of a Girl Scout 
group going to see the Rockettes and their Christmas Spectacular, which, by the way, is advertised here in New York approximately every 73 seconds. Anyway, they went through the metal detectors at Radio City, which is when she was stopped by security and told she could not enter the facility. They let her daughter go in with the other scout moms, but Ms. Conlon says they told her that facial recognition technology had identified her and she was not permitted to enter because she works for a New Jersey-based law firm representing somebody who had a personal injury lawsuit against a restaurant that is somehow part of Madison Square Garden. Conlon can't figure this out. The lawsuit is being handled by her firm's New York office. She works in Jersey. She's got nothing to do with it. Yet a spokesman for MSG confirms nobody working for that law firm is admitted to see the Rockettes, the Rangers, or the Knicks. Given how Jim Dolan has driven the Rockettes, the Rangers, and the Knicks into the ground, it could have been worse for Ms. Conlon. They could have let her in. But our winner, Sean Hannity. The folks at TPM Talking Points Memo phoned him about his role in the insurrection texts of the former chief of staff for Trump, Mark Meadows. Hannity's reply, number one, you're not allowed to get my number. You knew the rules and you didn't care. Let me translate that into English. Number one, you're not allowed to get my number. You knew the rules and you didn't care. Yes, I believe it's a law, a federal law. 18 U.S. Code 337. Anybody getting Sean Hannity's phone number is subject to a penalty of not more than seven hours in a holding cell with Greg Gutfeld. You're not allowed to get my number. I was flashed back. I've been having a lot of these flashbacks lately, doctor. To Hannity's old Fox colleague, Bill O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly used to have a radio show, too, before the loofahs and the falafels of history caught up with him. One day, a provocateur called in, identified himself as Mike, and he told Bill O, quote, I like to listen to you during the day, and I think Keith Olbermann's show, at which point O'Reilly disconnected the call and went into a tirade. Mike is, he's a gone guy. You know, we, we have your phone numbers, by the way. So if you're listening, Mike, we have your phone number and we're going to turn it over to Fox Security and you'll be getting a little visit. Mike is going to get in big trouble because we're not going to play around. When you call us, ladies and gentlemen, just so you know, we do have your phone number. And if you say anything untoward, obscene or anything like that, Fox Security will contact your local authorities. Bill O'Reilly believed that Fox could send the cops to punish people, callers who said things he didn't like on his radio show, just like Hannity thinks you're not allowed to get his phone number. It always pleased me that when they finally fired Bill O'Reilly after the 3,000th harassment case or whatever it was, Bill O was escorted out of the Fox headquarters down the street from me by Fox Security. Sean, you're not allowed to get my number. Watch yourself. I have facial recognition to Hannity, today's worst person in the world. Still ahead on Countdown, the rumor within NBC Universal that things are going so badly at MSNBC that they may sell it or shutter it. I had another one of those flashbacks. I went back to the day in 2009 when things were going so well at MSNBC that they actually wanted to sell it or shutter it because the chairman's mother was a fan of Fox News. No, seriously. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need you can help. Every dog has its day. Two things to mention. First, it is unbelievable. There are now 27 dogs on the kill list at the New York City Pound, the NYCACC. Happy holidays. Reminding you of Elaine Boozler's offer to cover ordinary expenses for a year if you save one of them by adopting. See their bios on my Twitter feed for dogs. Also, though a big shepherd named Grizzly arrived just last Thursday in the pound at DeVore, California. He's five years old, injured. They're already ready to kill him because he's acting stressed. It's as if they deliberately can't understand cause and effect. Pledges to help a rescue group save Grizzly are urgently needed. My tweet about him is also at Tom Jumbo Grumbo on Twitter. I thank you, and Grizzly thanks you. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. So, a programming announcement now. This is the planned holiday schedule. I am taking the next week off. And we will be back with a new episode next Thursday. That is December 29th. If in the interim something else happens, like Elon Musk fleeing the planet or Trump getting frog-marched at Mar-a-Lago or whatever, of course, I will put out a special edition, and if you are subscribing to this, it will download automatically on your device. You should excuse the expression. So now to the number two story on the countdown, and my favorite topic, me, and things I promised not to tell, and this is not the anniversary of this event. It, in fact, happened over the summer, but I was reminded of it yesterday when somebody who knows told me that things are going so poorly at NBC News that one of the things floating around NBC Universal corporate management half seriously at this point is to sell, among other things, MSNBC or just close MSNBC down. That rang a few bells, so here goes. Often it happens in television that there are events so traumatic that the cliche about your life flashing before your eyes does not apply, but an equally hackneyed one about your career flashing before your eyes might. The executive producer of our MSNBC newscast Countdown, Izzy Povich, and I were on the grown-up elevator to the office of NBC President Jeff Zucker on the 52nd floor of 30 Rock in New York, summoned there by some garbled message from MSNBC President Phil Griffin about MSNBC being taken off the air. I was mumbling to Izzy sundry imprecations and reminiscences, Eight freaking months is. We spent 12 freaking months forcing them to create Maddow's show. It lasts eight months. All the crap, prompter practice, getting her over her fears, rockets past CNN, only eight months of show, and now it's all gone. Izzy reminded me it was not just Rachel's show that was threatened, which was why poor Court Harson from Hardball was already upstairs, along with poor Ed Schultz and Phil Griffin, and Rachel's executive producer Bill Wolf, and some clown from Morning Joe, and a couple of other MSNBC executives, and us. I know, I know. I did the line from the drunken Irishman from Hitchcock's The Birds, complete with the bad accent. It's the end of the world. I said Jeff Immelt is going to take MSNBC off the air. 
I didn't need any of my overwrought visions from two years earlier of the future of liberal news commentary falling out the NBC window to its death on the rink. This was the real thing. The chairman of General Electric was threatening to open the window himself, throw us out the window himself, and then race down to the pavement to stomp on our dying remains himself. Poor Ed Schultz heard Jeff Zucker say those words, and he had screwed up his face and tilted his head like a puppy hearing a car crash. He had not believed it the first time. He had not believed it the second time. Zucker said it a third time, Immelt is going to take MSNBC off the effing air. Ed Schultz groaned. After weeks of Griffin's coaxing, he had finally just moved from Nebraska to New York the preceding weekend. Yet he was still somehow only the second most strung out person in the room. You! Zucker shouted at me. You're the smartest one in the room! What the F do we do now? I'll confess I was shaken by this because it appeared for once that Zucker was not being sarcastic. I had never before seen him flush nor flustered. This was a guy who wore fleece in July. Yet now he was beet red and sweating. Sometimes he knew what he was doing, and as his opposition to hiring Maddow had proved, sometimes he didn't know what he was doing. But he always acted as the most confident man in the galaxy. But now he literally had no clue what to do next, and he not only could not ignore my advice, he desperately needed it. This situation and that color on his face were almost worth watching the corporate fascists nuke my network. I asked Zucker to explain what happened. You goddamn well know what happened! Zucker moved towards me, and I stood up, and I told him I would see myself out. He stopped, remembering that he did indeed actually need my help. I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize. This isn't rational. This is, this is Immelt. Last week sometime, Bill O'Reilly snapped. He told Murdoch he wasn't going to take any more of what you were saying about him on the air, so he did a piece last night accusing GE of manufacturing the components that have been used in roadside bombs that were built in Iran to kill Americans in Iraq, which is, which is true. Legally, that's legally true. They found roadside bombs that had like 30-year-old GE transistors or, or TV tubes from 1954 or something in them. Legally, GE did manufacture components that were used in roadside bombs that were built in Iran to kill Americans in Iraq. So O'Reilly puts this on his effing show as a lead story. And then Fox sent two camera crews and this little crap producer from O'Reilly's show, Jesse Waters something, to stake Immelt out and chase him around the GE shareholders meeting in Charlotte. Zucker finally came up for air and I jumped in. Why didn't Immelt have six camera crews to stake out the two Fox crews and chase them around in Charlotte? I mean, isn't that one of our news hubs, Charlotte? Doesn't Immelt own like 20 camera crews there? He bring a camera crew, you bring two camera crews? Zucker started to not like me again. Now you suggest that. Where were you when... All right, never mind. It doesn't matter. Immelt says if there's one more story on Bill O'Reilly about GE manufacturing components for roadside bombs in Iraq, he's taking MSNBC off the air immediately. It'll just be 24 hours of lockup, and I'm fired, and you're fired, and then he pointed at Chris Matthews' producer, and Matthews is fired, and he pointed at poor Ed Schultz, and you're fired, and Ed whimpered. So, smartass, what the F do we do? I feigned all the nonchalance I could feign. If I could have lit a cheroot by striking a match on the sole of my boot, I would have. It's manageable. But Jeff, why is Immelt so worked up about what O'Reilly said about him? Only O'Reilly's nutjob viewers actually believe any of that crap. Nobody at GE, nobody investing in GE could possibly believe we're building components for roadside bombs. Zucker inhaled deeply. Immelt's mother believes it. All the heads in the room turn toward the president of NBC. Mrs. Immelt, back in Cincinnati, is a devoted Bill O'Reilly viewer. Watches him every night. Sees this. Calls him. Says, Sonny, why are you manufacturing components that were used in roadside bombs built in Iran to kill Americans in Iraq? I had not expected that. I said to Zucker, so, so he'll really burn, what, $200 million a year in profits? Just between Rachel and me? Because his mom watches Bill O'Reilly? Zucker got angry again. You bet your effing ass he will. 
Now, you said it was manageable. How? How the heck do we manage it, Alberman? Just a minute. How old is she? Zucker summoned all his annoyance. How old is who? Immelt's mother. How old is she, Jeff? Zucker was really annoyed. How the F should I know? You're missing the point. I had him really worked up, nearly to the boiling point. It was great. Guess. Zucker spluttered. I don't know. He's in his mid-fifties. She's got to be 80, 90-something. I stifled a fake yawn. Yeah, you're right. Probably closer to 90 now that I think of it. So the problem is, she watches O'Reilly. She tells him what's on Fox, what O'Reilly's saying about GE. Well, I think you have a simple solution. I'd say the first thing you do is you send over a couple of big guys to her house, and you pull the freaking cable out of the wall. Zucker actually gasped. My producer, Izzy Povich, unsuccessfully stifled a laugh, and I saw Rachel crack a smile. Zucker regained himself. This isn't funny, Olbermann. I crossed my legs. Oh, it's a little funny. And anyway, it's not essential. If the problem is Imelt is threatening to take the network off the air because O'Reilly is avenging himself against me by attacking him and attacking GE, the short-term solution is easy, and in fact, it is manageable. The long-term solution, that's not easy, and that's not manageable, but the short-term one, that's simple. Rest of this week, next week, maybe the week after that even, we just don't mention Fox News on MSNBC. Something resembling a smile crossed Zucker's face. It made him look a little less like a lizard person and more like a monkey with glasses. You do that? Forever? No. Not forever I would not do that, I said. To buy us time? Yes. But remember, who was it who was in my office last winter telling me that I should go on the air and and just to F with Fox... I should ask why Rupert Murdoch was still running a huge international media company like News Corp, despite all the reports that he's suffering from dementia, even though there haven't been any reports that he's suffering from dementia. For everybody's sake here, who was that again who told me to do that? Zucker's goodwill was gone again. Obviously, that was me. What's your point? My point is... We built this new brand of ours organically on a couple of themes, a couple of statements of principle, and one of them is, to use your words, just to F with Fox. If we don't F with Fox for a couple of weeks at the start of the summer, who's going to care? Who's going to notice? But like after two weeks, three weeks, our viewers are going to notice, and the TV writers are going to notice, and then the crap will hit from every direction you can think of temporary freeze on mentioning Fox and mentioning O'Reilly and mentioning Murdoch? Fine. Permanent freeze? Might as well let Immelt turn us off in the morning after all. I don't think Zucker actually heard the last part about Immelt turning us off after all. The lack of color was returning to his face. Okay, breathe. He kept saying to himself, breathe, breathe, okay, breathe. He looked at me and nodded. He pointed at Izzy and at Phil Griffin and me. You and you and you and I. We will talk tomorrow, maybe tonight, and we'll all meet again next week. Until then, nothing about Fox, anybody. Are we clear? Nothing on the air about Fox. Silence in the room. Then the assorted noises of people rising mixed with attempts to resuscitate poor Ed Schultz. Somebody, Matthew's guy Harson, I think, was almost at the door out of Zucker's office, an office so big that it was to steal the Ring Lardner line, the size of the Yale Bowl, but with lamps. And then a voice spoke up quietly but firmly. Excuse me. It was Rachel Maddow. Excuse me. I will not have the content of my show dictated by any corporations, including the one I work for. Remember, this is June 2009. She still felt that way then. And especially one I don't work for. I will walk out first. I cannot have the audience wondering what else I have not told them. I don't do a lot about Fox on my show, but if there is a story about Fox, I will not honor this freeze. I will report that story. And if I'm prevented from reporting that story, I will leave. Whereupon, she left. Zucker barked. Phil, Alberman, Izzy, stay. When the rest of the room had cleared, Zucker blew air out of his mouth as if it were smoke. He gestured violently at me with his right arm. I told you she was a mistake. You didn't listen to me. I told you. Now she's your problem. All of this is your problem. Get her back on the reservation or else. Now I had run out of goodwill and jokes. Oh, 
I'll, I'll get her back on the reservation, Jeff. But if you think this is my problem, just think about what happens if he really does take us off the air. Or if it just gets out that he threatened to take us off the air because his mother didn't like what Fox said about him. That's my problem? Uh Uh-uh. That's your problem, and it's the problem of the CEO of the frickin' sixth largest corporation in the world who makes his business decisions involving hundreds of millions of dollars of profits based on what his mother says. At this point, Phil Griffin managed to pull Zucker away, and Izzy and I made for the door, saying nothing until we were in the elevator. Finally, she asked... What are you going to do about Rachel? I looked straight ahead. I have depth perception issues while traveling forward, backwards, up or down. Yeah, if I know what I'm going to do about her. But I got an idea. I mean, the only person she was really talking to in there was herself. This isn't a brand new surprise success for her anymore. This is successful. This is what, nine, ten months? She's successful. She said she was once a dancing cell phone outside a cell phone store outside of Boston. She ain't going back to that. I went to talk to Rachel about an hour later and reassured her. I mentioned that powerful as Fox was, they were not going to be able to reinvade Iraq by themselves. And unless she moved it way closer than it had been, nobody would cross her censorship line. And I said, just give me as much time as the French government took before fleeing during the Nazi advance in 1940. I said, give me, what was it, 33 days? Give me 33 days. If we aren't back where we were this morning, we can both quit on the air. I mean, that'd be fun, right? Three nights later, well after midnight on a Friday, my NBC-issued BlackBerry buzzed with a quick email from Rachel Maddow. Hey, she wrote, don't necessarily quote me because I'm really drunk, but just make the best deal you can for us. I trust you. We don't need to do Fox all the time. I never do Fox stories anyway. I just had to say that, and this is the best platform we will ever have. Well, she was right at least for the time being. A couple of weeks later, I had to sneak in a script that blasted Fox, and at 10.30 at home that night, I got a call from a drunken Phil Griffin shouting into the phone, I have a family! Zucker had to go meet with Roger Ailes secretly inside 30 Rock, and I hope they remembered to clean the room afterwards, and Immelt even had to meet with Murdoch. And then happily, some idiot GE executive decided to boast to the New York Times about getting us little talent children under control and a big deal with the executives over at Fox and how they'd settled everything, which blew up the whole deal instantly because the moment the deal went public, NBC looked so stupid and even NBC News was now risked. The only point of the whole thing was to keep the Immelts and the Zuckers and the Griffins and the Aleses from throwing us and our little island of liberal commentary out of that window at 30 Rock. But as Rachel Maddow and I would be constantly reminded in the ensuing years, 30 Rock has a lot of freaking windows. So that, the day they almost threw all of us out the window at 30 Rock because Jeff Immelt's mommy was a big Bill O'Reilly fan, that flashed me back to that imagery out the window. And that is what we will close the countdown with. Possibly James Thurber's most cutting, most prophetic story of American fame without character, American adoration without any redeeming qualities. It foretold everybody from Joe McCarthy to Donald Trump to Kanye West, the greatest man in the world. Next. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. To the Master, the work of James Thurber. There is a short film of this story. I don't think it really does it justice. I don't think anything does it justice. Occasionally, real life does do it justice. I've thought I've seen this story playing out in real time in this country almost every day for about seven years. Sit back and relax, if relax is the right word for it. For The Greatest Man in the World by James Thurber. Looking back on it now from the vantage point of 1940, one can only marvel that it had not happened long before it did. The United States of America had been, ever since Kitty Hawk, blindly constructing the elaborate petard by which sooner or later it must be hoist. It was inevitable that someday there would come roaring out of the skies a national hero of insufficient intelligence, background, and character successfully to endure the mounting orgies of glory prepared for aviators who stayed up for a long time or flew a great distance. Both Lindbergh and Byrd, fortunately for national decorum and international amity, had been gentlemen. So had our other famous aviators. They wore their laurels gracefully, withstood the awful weather of publicity, married excellent women, usually fine family, and quietly retired to private life and the enjoyment of their varying fortunes. No untoward incidents on a worldwide scale marred the perfection of their conduct on the perilous heights of fame. The exception to the rule was, however, bound to occur, and it did. In July 1937, when Jack Pal Smirch, erstwhile mechanics helper, in a small garage in Westfield, Iowa, flew a second-hand, single-motored, Bresthaven Dragonfly 3 monoplane all the way around the world without stopping. Never before in the history of aviation had such a flight as Smirch's even been dreamed of. No one had even taken seriously the weird floating auxiliary gas tanks, invention of the mad New Hampshire professor of astronomy, Dr. Charles Lewis Gresham, upon which Smirch placed full reliance. When the garage worker, a slightly built, surly, unprepossessing young man of 22 appeared at Roosevelt Field early in July 1937, slowly chewing a great quid of scrap tobacco and announced, Nobody ain't seen no flying yet! The newspapers touched briefly and satirically upon his projected 25,000-mile flight. Aeronautical and automotive experts dismissed the idea curtly, implying that it was a hoax, a publicity stunt. The rusty, battered, second-hand plane wouldn't go. The Gresham auxiliary tanks wouldn't work. It was simply a cheap joke. Smirch, however, after calling on a girl in Brooklyn who worked in the flap-folding department of a large paper box factory, a girl whom he later described as his sweet patootie, 
climbed nonchalantly into his ridiculous plane at dawn of the memorable 7th of July, 1937, spit a curve of tobacco juice into the still air, and took off, carrying with him only a gallon of bootleg gin and six pounds of salami. When the garage boy thundered out over the ocean, the papers were forced to record in all seriousness that a mad, unknown young man, his name was variously misspelled, had actually set out upon a preposterous attempt to span the world in a rickety one-engine contraption, trusting to the long-distance refueling device of a crazy schoolmaster. When nine days later, without having stopped once, the tiny plane appeared above San Francisco Bay, headed for New York, spluttering and choking to be sure, but still magnificently and miraculously aloft, the headlines, which long since had crowded everything else off the front page, even the shooting of the governor of Illinois by the Valletti gang, swelled to unprecedented size, and the news stories began to run to 25 and 30 columns. It was noticeable, however, that the accounts of the epoch-making flight touched rather lightly upon the aviator himself. This was not because the facts about the hero as a man were too meager, but because they were too complete. Reporters, who had been rushed out to Iowa when Smirch's plane was first sighted over the little French coast town of Serly-le-Mer to dig up the story of the great man's life, had promptly discovered that the story of his life could not be printed. His mother, a sullen short-order cook in a shack restaurant on the edge of a tourist's camping ground near Westfield, met all inquiries as to her son with an angry, "'Ah, the hell with him. I hope he drowns.'" His father appeared to be in jail somewhere for stealing spotlights and lap robes from tourists' automobiles. His young brother, a weak-minded lad, had but recently escaped from the Preston, Iowa Reformatory and was already wanted in several western towns for the theft of money order blanks from post offices. These alarming discoveries were still piling up at the very time that Pal Smirch, the greatest hero of the 20th century, blear-eyed, dead for sleep, half-starved, was piloting his crazy junk heap high above the region in which the lamentable story of his private life was being unearthed, headed for New York and a greater glory than any man of his time had ever known. The necessity for printing some account in the papers of the young man's career and personality had led to a remarkable predicament. It was, of course, impossible to reveal the facts, for a tremendous popular feeling in favor of the young hero had sprung up like a grass fire when he was halfway across Europe on his flight around the globe. He was, therefore, described as a modest chap, taciturn, blonde, popular with his friends, popular with girls. The only available snapshot of Smirch, taken at the wheel of a phony automobile in a cheap photo studio at an amusement park, was touched up so that the little vulgarian looked quite handsome. His twisted leer was smoothed into a pleasant smile. The truth was, in this way, kept from the youth's ecstatic compatriots. They did not dream that the Smirch family was despised and feared by its neighbors in the obscure Iowa town, nor that the hero himself, because of numerous unsavory exploits, had come to be regarded in Westfield as a nuisance and a menace. Pal Smirch had, the reporters discovered, once knifed the principal of his high school. Not mortally, to be sure, but he had knifed him. And on another occasion, surprised in the act of an Stealing altar cloth from a church, he had bashed the sexton over the head with a pot of Easter lilies. For each of these offenses, he had served a sentence in the reformatory. Inwardly, the authorities, both in New York and in Washington, prayed that an understanding providence might, however awful such a thing seemed, bring disaster to the rusty, battered plane and its illustrious pilot, whose unheard-of flight had aroused the civilized world to hosannas of hysterical praise. The authorities were convinced that the character of the renowned aviator was such that the limelight of adulation was bound to reveal him to all the world as a congenital hooligan, mentally and morally unequipped to cope with his own prodigious fame. I trust 
said the Secretary of State at one of the many secret cabinet meetings called to consider the national dilemma. I trust that his mother's prayer will be answered, by which he referred to Mrs. Emma Smirch's wish that her son might be drowned. It was, however, too late for that. Smirch had leaped the Atlantic and then the Pacific as if they were mill ponds. At three minutes after two o'clock on the afternoon of July 17, 1937, the garage boy brought his idiotic plane into Roosevelt Field for a perfect three-point landing. It had, of course, been out of the question to arrange a modest little reception for the greatest flyer in the history of the world. He was received at Roosevelt Field with such elaborate and pretentious ceremonies as rocked the world. Fortunately, however, the worn and spent hero promptly swooned, had to be removed bodily from his plane, and was spirited from the field without having opened his mouth once. Thus, he did not jeopardize the dignity of his first reception, a reception illumined by the presence of the Secretaries of War and the Navy, Mayor Michael J. Moriarty of New York, the Premier of Canada, Governors Fanneman, Groves, McFeely, and Critchfield, and a brilliant array of European diplomats. Smirch did not, in fact, come to in time to take part in the gigantic hullabaloo arranged at City Hall for the next day. He was rushed to a secluded nursing home and confined in bed. It was nine days before he was able to get up, or to be more exact, before he was permitted to get up. Meanwhile, the greatest minds in the country in solemn assembly had arranged a secret conference of city, state, and government officials, which Smirch was to attend for the purpose of being instructed in the ethics and behavior of heroism. On the day that the little mechanic was finally allowed to get up and dress, and for the first time in two weeks took a great chew of tobacco, he was permitted to receive the newspaper men, this by way of testing him out. Smirch did not wait for questions. Use guys! he said, and the Times man winced. You guys can tell a cockeyed world that I put it over on Lindbergh, see? Yeah, made an ass that I'm two frogs. The two frogs was a reference to a pair of gallant French flyers who, in attempting a flight only halfway around the world, had two weeks before unhappily been lost at sea. The Times man was bold enough at this point to sketch out for Smirch the accepted formula for interviews in cases of this kind. He explained that there should be no arrogant statements belittling the achievements of other heroes, particularly heroes of foreign nations. Ah, to hell with that, said Smirch. I did it, see? I did it, and I'm talking about it. And he did talk about it. None of this extraordinary interview was, of course printed. On the contrary, the newspapers, already under the disciplined direction of a secret directorate created for the occasion and composed of statesmen and editors, gave out to a panting and restless world that Jackie, as he had been arbitrarily nicknamed, would consent to say only that he was very happy and that anyone could have done what he did. My achievement has been, I fear, slightly exaggerated, the Times man's article had him protest with a modest smile. These newspaper stories were kept from the hero, a restriction which did not serve to abate the rising malevolence of his temper. The situation was indeed extremely grave, for Pal Smirch was, as he kept insisting, raring to go. He could not much longer be kept from a nation clamorous to lionize him. It was the most desperate crisis the United States of America had faced since the sinking of the Lusitania. On the afternoon of the 27th of July, Smirch was spirited away to a conference room in which were gathered mayors, governors, government officials, behaviorist psychologists, and editors. He gave them each a limp, moist paw and a brief, unlovely grin. Hiya, he said. When Smirch was seated, the mayor of New York arose and, with obvious pessimism, attempted to explain what he must say and how he must act when presented to the world ending his talk with a high tribute to the hero's courage and integrity. The mayor was followed by Governor Fanneman of New York, who, after a touching declaration of faith, introduced Cameron Spottiswood, second secretary of the American Embassy in Paris, the gentleman selected to coach Smirch in the amenities of public ceremonies. 
sitting in a chair with a soiled yellow tie in his hand and his shirt open at the throat, unshaved, smoking a rolled cigarette. Jack Smirch listened with a leer on his lips. I get you. I get you, he cut in nastily. You want me to act like a softie, huh? You want me to act like that mebbity mebbity baby face Lindbergh, huh? Well, nuts to that, see? Everyone took in his breath sharply. It was a sigh and a hiss. Mr. Lindbergh, began a United States senator, purple with rage, and Mr. Bird, Smirch, who was paring his nails with a jackknife, cut in again. Boyd! he exclaimed. Oh, for God's sake, that big... Somebody shut off the blasphemies with a sharp word. A newcomer had entered the word, the room. Everyone stood up except Smirch, who was still busy with his nails, and he did not even glance up. Mr. Smirch, said someone sternly, the President of the United States. It had been thought that the presence of the chief executive might have a chastening effect on the young hero, and the former had been, thanks to the remarkable cooperation of the press, secretly brought to the obscure conference room. A great, painful silence fell. Smirch looked up, waved a hand at the president. "'How you coming?' he asked, and began rolling a fresh cigarette. The silence deepened. Someone coughed in a strained way. Jeez, it's hot, ain't it? said Smirch. He loosened two more shirt buttons, revealing a hairy chest and the tattooed word Sadie enclosed in a stenciled heart. The great and important men in the room, faced by the most serious crisis in American history, exchanged worried frowns. Nobody seemed to know how to proceed. Come on, come on, said Smirch. Let's get the hell out of here. When do I start cutting in on the parties, huh? And when is there going to be this in it? He rubbed a thumb and forefinger together meaningly. Money, exclaimed a state senator, shocked. Pale, yeah, money, said Pal, flipping his cigarette out of the window, and big money. He began rolling a fresh cigarette. Big money, he repeated, frowning over the rice paper. He tilted back in his chair and leered at each gentleman separately, the leer of an animal that knows its power, the leer of a leopard loose in a bird and dog shop. Ah, oh, for God's sake, let's get someplace where it's cooler, he said. I've been cooped up plenty for three weeks. Smirch stood up and walked over to an open window, where he stood staring down into the street nine floors below. The faint shouting of newsboys floated up to him. He made out his name. Hot dog, he cried, grinning, ecstatic. He leaned out over the sill. You tell them, babies! he shouted down. Hot diggity dog! In the tense little knot of men standing behind him, a quick, mad impulse flared up. An unspoken word of appeal, of command, seemed to ring through the room, yet it was deadly silent. Charles K. L. Brand, secretary to the mayor of New York City, happened to be standing nearest Smirch. He looked inquiringly at the president of the United States. The president, pale, grim, nodded shortly. Brand, a tall, powerfully built man, wants a tackle at Rutgers University, stepped forward, seized the greatest man in the world by his left shoulder and the seat of his pants, and pushed him out the window. My God, he's fallen out the window, cried a quick-witted editor. Get me out of here, cried the president. Several men sprang to his side, and he was hurriedly escorted out of a door toward a side entrance of the building. The editor of the Associated Press took charge, being used to such things. Crisply, he ordered certain men to leave, others to stay. Quickly, he outlined a story which all the papers were to agree on, sent two men to the street to handle that end of the tragedy, commanded a senator to sob, and two congressmen to go to pieces nervously. In a word, he skillfully set the stage for the gigantic task that was to follow, the task of breaking to a grief-stricken world, the sad story of the untimely, accidental death of its most illustrious and spectacular figure. The funeral was, as you know, <clears throat> the most elaborate, the finest, 
the solemnest and the saddest ever held in the United States of America. The monument in Arlington Cemetery, with its clean white shaft of marble and the simple device of a tiny plane carved on its base, is a place for pilgrims in deep reverence to visit. The nations of the world paid lofty tributes to little Jackie Smirch, America's greatest hero. At a given hour, there were two minutes of silence throughout the nation. Even the inhabitants of the small, bewildered town of Westfield, Iowa, observed this touching ceremony. Agents of the Department of Justice saw to that. One of them was especially assigned to stand grimly in the doorway of a little shack restaurant on the edge of the tourist's camping ground just outside the town. There, under his stern scrutiny, Mrs. Emma Smirch bowed her head over two hamburger steaks sizzling on her grill, bowed her head and turned away so that the Secret Service man could not see the twisted, strangely familiar leer on her lips. The Greatest Man in the World by James Thurber. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening, the greatest man in the world. If you're not following or subscribing to the podcast, please do so. Among other things, if there are special editions between now and the next scheduled countdown on December 29th, you will know automatically. Here are the credits. Most of the music, including our theme from Beethoven's Ninth, was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. Produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today from our rotating cast of celebrity announcers was the great friend of mine, John Dean. Everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's the 100th episode of the Countdown Podcast for this, the 715th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him now while we still can. I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, good luck, and Merry Christmas. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.